We're beginning this morning. Uh, we call this our ministry year launch, and everybody's back from summer. Everybody refreshed, encouraged? Yeah? Everybody excited that summer is almost over? Boo. Right. Sad. I'm sorry. I, hated, I didn't want to do that. I did. I lied. Just getting you prepped. Getting to make sure you're engaged. We call this our ministry year launch, and this is the time when we're kind of rallying again, where we're kicking off a new series, and when we've been praying very carefully and specifically towards what we believe God is calling us to as a church, and we believe, as elders in this church, we've looked at God's word, we've prayed together, and I think there is great consensus that we believe that the book of Acts is going to be foundational for us as a church. Why are we here? What is this thing called the church that we are a part of? What is its purpose and how is that purpose accomplished? These are foundational questions that every follower of Christ must have an answer to. These are questions that give us everything we need to function properly according to God's plan in this life, in this time. The book of Acts lays out for us these foundational truths. The book of Acts really provides for us a fundamental identity of the church. It establishes for us the very mission of the church, the purpose of the church, the composition of the church, the identity of the church, the power of the church. The book of Acts is so critically important for the Christian life, and unlocking this morning the very first 11 verses of the book of Acts will actually help to unlock this entire book for you, and if you can grasp the entire book of Acts, it will begin to unlock and shed light upon the New Testament in ways you have never seen before. And so I trust that as we enter into this sermon series, you see the banners behind me there, and here's what we're going to look at this morning as we launch into this series. The call of the church, the primary calling upon the church is one of being sent. We are saved, and we rejoice in our celebration, or in our salvation, but we understand that we are saved with a purpose. We are saved to be sent out into this world, and what what you'll notice there in the subtitle of our sermon series is this. What we have been given to us is the promise, the power, and the guaranteed progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of the church. Let's begin together by looking at God's word, reading. Let's read the first 11 verses. It begins like this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them After his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. 
And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of God. And in this first 11 verses of the book of Acts, we notice a few things. First, I want you to see this. The promise of a new day is here. The church is founded upon this premise. The promise of a new day is here. And verses one through three really highlight that for us in a really powerful way. We see just some preliminary information out of the gates. Notice this. In the first book, the author of this book writes, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, which tells us something. First, we know this. We know that history affirms for us that Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Luke, we know from Scripture, is an associate of the Apostle Paul. He is a a beloved friend of the Apostle Paul. He's not an apostle himself, but he is a close friend of the Apostles. We know this too. Paul mentions that Luke is a beloved physician. In other words, Luke is identified in Scripture as being somebody who is highly valued in the community. He is somebody who has a lot of clout in the community. He is a physician. He is well-trained. He is academically trained. And as we look through this letter, what we find is that is exactly true. The writing is masterful in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, and it points to someone who is highly educated. In fact, what we see is this, too, that this is a part two of a greater work that Luke was writing. It points us back to the very first book, which is Luke. So we're going to be doing some flipping this morning as we get our bearings in the book of Acts. So flip backwards with me to the Gospel of Luke, just to chapter one. We get a little bit more information on why this book was written and to whom primarily this book was written Luke mentions in Acts chapter 1 the name Theophilus, and you'll notice this name coming up again in Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning who are eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Right away we see this first, Theophilus is a real person. It's not some code name for a group of Christians. It was a common name in the ancient world. And Theophilus, most people believe Theophilus is, again, somebody who is highly educated, incredibly wealthy, and probably is a patron of Luke. He has paid for Luke to go and research all of the life of Christ and to write an account. He's helped to really provide the church with a book of history. And that's what we find out about Luke. Not only is he a physician, but he has actually traded his career in and becomes for us and the church for all times primarily a historian that records detailed information. Look at what he says here. He goes for eyewitness accounts and he writes these things. Notice, here's why. To build conviction into the heart of this man, Theophilus. See, why, why, why is this necessary that Luke would want to bring conviction to this man, to provide evidence and support? It's more than likely that this time in the life of the church, listen, there is great opposition and persecution that's melting. 
Attacks on the faith are coming from all angles. They're being told that what they believe is foolish, as Paul says, it's foolishness to the world. And so what Paul, or excuse me, what Luke does here is he wants to write an accurate account based on all these eyewitness accounts to bring a greater weight of evidence upon the heart and mind of Theophilus and all those who would read this years and years, centuries, and even millennia later to acknowledge one thing. What we believe is fact. Everything we believe about Jesus is real. It is not some made-up myth. We can have confidence. We can have courage because we have conviction. And so here, that's exactly what Luke begins to do. You can flip back to Acts if you're not there already. Here, in verse one, we're told that Luke wants us to consider his first book. And there's a sense in the original language with what Luke is saying is this. In the first manner, in the first account, I wrote to you this, but here's what he's trying to do. But now what I have to you is really important because what we thought might be the end, what we thought might be all there was to the ministry of Jesus is not so. It is continuing on. The work of Jesus will continue through the people he's called to himself, through this body he calls the church who is now being sent out into the world on mission. There's powerful language that Luke uses here. And like I said before, he is developing this important theme of how God is going to build his church, how God is going to use his church. And so this becomes so crucial for us as the church to understand. And in particular, chapters one and two of Acts really do establish this fundamental identity of the church, its mission, purpose, its composition. And so Luke begins Acts by making an important connection with the past. What he's written about Jesus matters immensely for what the church will become. It's important then that we kind of get our mind around Luke. We're kind of jumping into the second book, into a a second chapter of what Luke's already written here. And so if I could just maybe sum up for us in a nutshell uh, the gospel of Luke, it would be this. Jesus is the one who changes all of human history. That is the primary focus of Luke as he writes the gospel of Luke. Jesus is this world-changing figure. It is in Jesus and through Jesus that all of history is about to be flipped upside down. In fact, let me just point one verse out to you. If you look at the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, you'll notice something interesting. Comparing it to, say, Matthew's, you know, Matthew, when he writes his genealogy, he wants to show the humanity of Jesus. He links us all the way back to Abraham. But when you look at Luke chapter three, it's so fascinating because Luke doesn't stop with Abraham. He goes back even further. He doesn't just stop with Noah. He goes back even further. He goes all the way back, listen, to Adam who is called the son of God. See, why? Why is Luke wanting to link the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam? It's so critical for us to understand the mind of Luke as he writes. Who is Adam? Who is Adam? Adam is the first human being. He is the key figure who began all of human history. The day of humanity began with Adam, but we all know the story, right? In the beginning, it was all good, and Adam was walking with God and living in great relationship with God, unhindered by sin, but in a moment of rebellion tempted by Satan, Adam is responsible for plunging all of humanity into sin. 
In a moment in time, the fabric of the universe is ruptured. It is fractured because sin begins to invade every crack, every crevice, every corner of the universe. It is infected by this disease called sin. There is nothing in the universe that remains untouched by the effects of sin, all because of Adam's failure and disobedience. And so Luke comes along and he's pointing Jesus, he's pointing to Jesus, he's propping him up and he's saying, look, Jesus, Jesus is the new human. Jesus is the true human. Jesus is the greater Adam. Jesus, as Paul says, is the second Adam. Here's why this is important. Because through Jesus, like there was one original man who brought forth through creation all of humanity, so now there is a new man. And this new man will undo what the first man did. This man will reverse the curse that has invaded all of humanity. He emerges on the scene to reverse the curse and to transform all of human history. Jesus Christ is the answer to the world's greatest problem, sin. And what's amazing, if I could draw another link, we're gonna be flipping, so I hope you brought band-aids. You might get some paper cuts this morning. Turn in your Bibles to the very last chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 24. And this is also foundational to understanding why Acts unfolds the way it does. In Acts chapter 24, a familiar chapter, after the death and burial of Jesus, they come to the tomb. You remember the story? Look at verse 1. It says this, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, a story you're familiar with, but I wonder if you, can, if you can see what Luke is trying to point us to. Have you ever thought about why we celebrate Easter on Sunday? You ever thought about that? I mean, what's the first day of the week, people? Sunday. Two people. Two people know the first day of the week is Sunday. Come on. The first day of the week is Sunday, right? Well, why, why, you know, why is Easter, why is it this big deal the first day of the week? Why, why does that matter? Does it matter? Is there anything significant to what God is trying to communicate? Yes. In fact, if I could draw a parallel to you, everybody know how God began creation? If you forget, the scriptures are on the board behind me. Notice this. Genesis 1, verse 1 and 3 reads this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and notice this, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, spoke out over the darkness, let there be light, and instantly light invades the darkness. This is the beginning of all creation. This is the first day of all creation, and then notice this language then in Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, did you catch that? What happens on the first day? The first day is the day that a new creation begins. And here we see is that Luke is drawing a parallel to this first creation day. This is a new day. In fact, we read even further in Luke chapter 24 and we say this. They came to the tomb. When was it? At dawn. Well, what's dawn? 
Dawn is the moment in time, right, where the light pervades into the darkness, where the day begins to unfold. Here we see this, it's a new day, and what was being communicated here is so powerfully important. It's a new day, it's a new time, it's a new creation happening all over again. What we see is this, God is bringing to pass what he promised he would do in Genesis chapter 315. God is bringing one who is able to grant a new day, a new creation. In fact, if you look through Luke 24 and you follow through, what's so interesting is they come with spices to anoint the body. Well, why are they trying to anoint the body? Because they think that it's, this is normal, right? That this is gonna go on the way it always has been. It's always been the same. Dead people stay dead. But yet, what they find when they get to the tomb is that the stone is roll away. That's new. This is all new. This is unexpected. Look, a tomb, a tomb is a monument. It literally means, the word means to remember. And what Luke is telling them here is this. As they went to the tomb, the place where they were remembering Jesus, what they found was that they no longer had to look back at old memories because he was not dead, he was alive. What was existing before them was a life, listen, of new memories. New memories with the one they loved because a new day had dawned. See, when we get together every Sunday, you want to know something? We celebrate, listen, Sunday is a perpetual reminder that our Lord is alive, amen? And it is a perpetual reminder, listen, that we have been given the privilege, church, this is so awesome, to live in a new day. We live in a new day. We live in a new day where Jesus Christ is doing a new and powerful work. So fascinating in verse three of Luke 24 is they call him, they say the Lord Jesus. The first and only time that that phrase is used in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why do they use that term? Because here for the first time with the empty tomb, the new day that's dawned, they recognize this, that he is the firstborn from the dead. That makes him Lord. That makes him king. That makes him ruler of this new day. This is King Jesus. Back in Acts chapter one, you'll notice that this all reveals the newness of the age that we live in. It might be helpful to note this. You know, some people, as they look at the book of Acts, they, they try and figure out who the main character is in the book of Acts. Some people think, well, well, it's probably, the, this is documenting the acts of the apostles, and certainly the apostles have a prevalent role to play in the book of Acts. But some people think, well, well, Peter is the main character in the first, you know, 11 or 12 chapters, and then Paul really takes over as the main character in chapters 13 and following, but, but some people think that the Holy Spirit's the main character because he plays a significant role, right? But listen, look at the very first verse. Let's, let's see who Luke identifies as the main character. In the first book, O Theophilus, I began, I have dealt with all that who? Jesus began to do and teach. Luke is establishing for us the cornerstone of the church, the one upon whom everything revolves and is built, the one upon whom we are to focus and follow. The main character in Luke or excuse me, in Acts, is Jesus. As we consider this new day that's dawn, one of the things we celebrate is that sins are forgiven. 
and we live. And this is good news. It's so interesting to consider this reality. The linchpin for the entire book of Acts and the gospel of Jesus Christ is the resurrection. Just think about that. Throughout the book of Acts, what we will find is every time the gospel is mentioned, primary emphasis is given not to the death, but to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just stop for a moment and consider, why, why is that the case? We, we certainly celebrate the death, amen, of Jesus Christ. It's, it's there, the death of Christ, that our sins are paid in full. It's there that our Savior hung in our place. It's there that God's wrath was unleashed upon him so that our debts could be wiped away, we could be washed as white as snow, and we say hallelujah, amen? Praise God for what he's done through the death of Jesus Christ. It's death that has paid our sins, but listen, death is never enough. It's not enough simply for someone to die. It's only enough if we live. The resurrection itself implies that death has occurred. That's why it's used kind of as shorthand for the gospel. It kind of, it it sums up all that's taking place in the death, burial, and resurrection But if forgiving, giving death is never good enough. Everybody, in a sense, has an atoning death. Do you realize that? Everybody, in a sense, has a forgiving death. Everybody, in a sense, has their sins paid for. The question is, by who? What matters most is that we have life. And the resurrection is the essential doctrine because it communicates everything about this historic age that we live in. We are living in a new day where there is new life. The text goes on to tell us that until the day that he was taken up, Jesus was doing his life and ministry and they were learning from him and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit the apostles to the apostles whom he had chosen, notice this verse three, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Here we're told that Jesus over 40 days regularly appeared to the apostles and he did so with convincing signs and proofs. The idea behind this word is this. He gave them irrefutable evidence that demands a verdict. He was establishing in their hearts and minds the reality of his death and his new life. He was giving them confidence for the mission moving forward. 40 days is significant as a chronological marker You see, Pentecost occurs 50 days after the Passover. We saw this in the the book of John, the Gospel of John as we studied through. Jesus Christ has been crucified on Passover and he's identified as the Passover lamb slain for the sins of the world. And now what we see, it's been 40 days since the death of Jesus Christ and 40 days after that moment, Jesus Christ is being taken up into heaven, seated at the right hand of God in a position of authority. Pentecost comes 50 days after Passover, so that tells us this. There's a 10-day window between Jesus' ascension and when the Spirit of God is going to be poured out upon the church at Pentecost. It's giving us an idea that these disciples, these apostles, are being left for 10 days to contemplate all that Jesus had taught them during his 40-day period. So why is this important? I believe it's important because during that 40 days, these disciples were given a fresh picture of Jesus. 
And this is so essential to us being effective as a church. We constantly need a fresh vision of Jesus Christ. We constantly need to be saturated with the gospel of Christ. So when we say, you know, we need to be in the word all the time, what we're really saying is this. We need our hearts, our eyes, our minds fixed back, reoriented back to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He must be the one that captures our attention, that captures our affections. We need to mull on the deep truths of the gospel so that they saturate our heart, giving us a fresh vision to now be effective in the world that God has sent us to. And that's exactly what's happened in the hearts of these apostles. And so Jesus has been speaking to them, notice this, 40 days, what about? About the kingdom of God. This is a massive theme throughout all of scripture, this kingdom of God theme, and we will begin to unfold it throughout the book of Acts because it comes up time and time again. We will develop it, and I'm gonna give you a little bit of a taste of that this morning. This is a major theme in the Gospels. Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God. He preached about the kingdom of God. He called people to the kingdom of God. It essentially represents Israel's hope for an ultimate and decisive manifestation of God's rule in human history. In essence, here's here's maybe a way to sum it up. It refers to the complete, total, comprehensive, and extensive sovereignty of God over all things. You say, but I thought God was sovereign over all things. He is, listen, but we know the effect that sin has had on the world. The world, because of sin, lives in rebellion to God. And this kingdom of God thought is telling us this, that there is a day coming when everything that has rebelled against God, when everything that has been fractured and tainted and destroyed by sin will be reversed and restored and reconciled through the cross to God. There is a day coming when everything, everything will be as it ought to be. No more sin No more sorrow, no more pain, no more wars, no more famine, no more murder or rape or abuse of any kind, no more opposition to the glory of God. And you see, Israel was always intended by their very existence to model a kingdom, a kingdom that was defined by laws and and codes and rules and by their actions and attitudes and everything they were, listen, was intending to point people to a God that needed to be worshiped, obeyed, and served in every area of life. That's why the nation of Israel was so extensive in its law. Every area of life was intended to be subjected to God and they reflected what was coming, a greater kingdom that would encompass all the universe. Somebody said to me this morning, you know, the signs that you have here, they look kind of sci-fi. Like, they're, you know, like, is we going to like a sci-fi theme? Yes! Because the sovereignty of God is about conquering and bringing into subjection all of the cosmos, all of the universe that is tainted by sin. There is not one square inch of the universe that is not affected by sin, that God is not going to declare mine and I will restore you and redeem you and bring you back and put you back into its proper place. Isn't that awesome? See, the gospel is not simply about rescuing souls. It is right now. But in its totality, it is about God's domain. It is about God's dominion. It is about God's grace in restoring what has been broken. And the linchpin to understanding all of this is the resurrection, where everything is covered with death. Now, because of the cross, will come life. 
It's a new day. The question left is how? How will God accomplish this? That's your second point. The power of a new life is given. Verses five, excuse me, four through eight really give us this picture of how God is going to accomplish the how-tos of God extending this plan and how he's going to use the church. So he says to them this in verse four, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Notice the first how-to, how God's going to accomplish this. He tells his apostles to do something very specific. You need to stay put, stay in Jerusalem. Well, you say, why is that so significant? Why, is God, like, why does God care if they stay in Jerusalem or if they go somewhere else? And, and why would he have to make mention of that? Well, here's why. Because the temptation to flee would have been very great right now. Again, the opposition and the persecution is mounting against these people. Their king, their ruler has just been crucified and they're kind of huddling themselves up in rooms, fearful for their lives, wondering, am I next? Am I going to lose my life for this cause too? So this command to stay was not insignificant, but it becomes more significant for a couple of different reasons. First, it's this. It expresses the continuation of Jesus' work. Say, what do you mean? Well, just imagine for a moment that I, I, and this is gonna take a big imagination, that I started to build a house, okay? And I, and for those of you who know me, you know that's a really big joke. Um, and and I, I began, you know, and I laid the cornerstone, the most important piece, you know, getting everything kind of plumbed and, and in the right order and, and set up to build the house. And I laid that, but then suddenly I died, And in my will, I said, you, you must come and finish the house that I was building. And you said, thanks a lot, Ian. I thought you were my friend. The question is, where would you start? Where would you start building? Exactly where I left off, right? You'd go right to where I left off and you'd start building from that point out. You you would show continuity with what I was doing. And here's the call for the apostles and for the church. Listen, my work isn't over. My work, in fact, this is the awesome, my work's just getting started. There's There's a cosmic plan unfolding right now and the church exists in this pivotal time period to accomplish this redemptive plan. That they're going to be used mightily. Listen, church, this is awesome news for us because we exist for a purpose. And so he says, look, my work, my ministry, my death and my burial and my resurrection, they all were finished up in Jerusalem and that's exactly where you need to begin your work, where you need to complete my work. But there's more than that. You see, if you just consider what Jerusalem meant to the typical Jew, I think you get a great picture of what God was trying to do here and what God was trying to declare. You see, Jerusalem, if you read through your Bibles, is crucial to God's unfolding plan of redemption. It is the capital city. It is the place, listen, where the throne of David was established. It is the place where God made a covenant with David telling him that there's going to be one in your line who will sit on your throne and he will rule supreme over all the universe forever and ever and ever and ever. 
So the Jewish mind understood that the significance to Jerusalem, the physical city of Jerusalem, was incredibly important. It reflected the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, on the earth. And I just want you to think in military strategy for just a minute. Can you imagine you're fighting this massive war, and the battle's raging, and there appears to be a great loss? What would you be declaring or what would you be communicating if all of a sudden you fled the capital city? You'd be declaring, you'd be putting your stamp on defeat. You'd say, we've lost, it's all over. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. You need to stand and declare that it is not lost because I have won. Victory is ours. And Christians, this is the awesome news. We do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. We stand upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and we have confidence that our Savior is a conquering Savior. We have confidence that whatever God brings our way, we face in victory because of our solidarity with Jesus Christ. So they stay. And by staying, they declare Jesus has not been defeated. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. And in verse 5, we see here the promise that has been given in verse 4 and 5. It says, wait, you need to wait. There's significance to Jerusalem and there's significance to waiting because the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. It says, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's so, it's so awesome, isn't it, to celebrate new life in Jesus Christ. So sweet to celebrate baptisms this morning. I hope that encourages your heart as we see the power of new life in these individuals. See, the promise of the Father was that the Holy Spirit would be sent to the church. But this promise was predicated upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. All throughout the Gospels, what we see is Jesus declaring, listen, I gotta leave you. He gets towards the end of his ministry and he says, guys, I have to leave you. They're like, Jesus, where are you going? Don't leave us, we need you. And he says, don't worry, something better is coming. Someone better is coming. But, but if, I, if I leave, then I can send him, and with him, you will be so much more effective, right? The Holy Spirit beside you, or excuse me, inside you, is better than Jesus beside you. So Jesus declared this to his disciples. He said, you wait, you wait, and you see the power of the new life to come. You see the power of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God that this new day is going to bring about. And he links it with John the Baptist, See, John the Baptist, he, he baptized with water, and it tells us something about the nature of baptism. Baptism was always reflecting a, a, a change in the person's thinking and, and a desire for heart change and the symbolism of being immersed into water and being brought out, the washing away of sins. But here's what's really important, the identifying with a new person or a new group. That's what baptism was essentially doing. So all these Jews are flocking to John the Baptist and they're getting baptized, a baptism of repentance. And what they're saying is this, we identify with repentant Israel. We know we have walked away from God. We know we need God to change us, to heal us, to fix us, to use us. You see, it was about identity. And it pointed forward to the baptism of the Spirit of God, which is going to happen in just 10 days. They'll be immersed, overwhelmed with the Spirit of God. They will be washed and be made new. They will be given new life with new power to accomplish this new mission. 
it's interesting in verse six, it's, the disciples kind of just kind of move past this and they begin to ask, or it appears they ask this question. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of God to Israel? You see, Jesus had just said some startling things about the coming of the Spirit of God. And he had said, look, because of my finished work, the promise that God made is about to come to pass. The Spirit will overwhelm you and you will have the indwelling presence, which is unique, by the way. And we don't have time to dive into the Old Testament passages, but you need to understand this. To the Jewish person, here's what that meant. And and you can write these down if you want. Joel 2, 28 into chapter 3, Zechariah 12 and 13, Isaiah 43 and 44. All of these paint this picture of this, about the Spirit of God being poured out onto a mournful Israel, a mournful Jerusalem. And in that moment, if you look at those passages, there is a tight connection with the the now coming of the the physical kingdom of God, where Jesus Christ will rule physically upon the earth, where his law will be established on all the earth, where all the earth will bow to him. So their question really is, it's quite understandable. They've been taught that they need the Holy Spirit. The nation of Israel desperately needs the Holy Spirit to purge them, to cleanse them, to identify them with the Messiah, to send them forth and accomplish the mission that God has called them to. And so now they're being told the Spirit is here, and and, and now they're thinking too, well, then the kingdom must be here. God, you're going to restore Israel to a physical kingdom where we will have national prominence, where you will use us. They understand that the kingdom is twofold. The kingdom is spiritual and the kingdom is physical. They simply don't understand that there is a gap between the two. And it's interesting, Jesus had just spent 40 days talking to them about the kingdom of God. He'd been explaining the significance of his life, his death, his resurrection, and how that was being used to establish the kingdom of God and how necessary it was. And so at this moment, they're well-informed in many ways about the kingdom of God. And notice this, Jesus doesn't rebuke them and say, you fools, there is no kingdom. I mean, the kingdom's just spiritual. Like, there's no physical kingdom, and Israel is done with. He doesn't say that. Instead, look at what he says in verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not that time, guys, is what he's saying. And the word for time there, it's not that that duration, it's not the right chronology, it's not the right time period. And by the way, secondly, it's none of your business. (laughs) Do you love that? God, the Father, has appointed this by his own authority. He knows when the physical kingdom is coming. That's not for you to be concerned with. Now, what a rebuke to so many in the Christian world who live in bunkers with canned goods waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ, right? Or those who try to pinpoint on a calendar, hey, maybe, you know, (laughs) they keep getting it wrong, right? When are we going to learn the lesson? You're like, well, does the Bible have anything to say about that? Yes, it's none of your business, It's none of my business. When Jesus comes back, God knows. God has established. God will bring it about. Right now, you focus on what I'm telling you to do. That's what he's saying. Your business is not to establish God's kingdom on earth. That's not the right time. And here's why that's important. Look, the church's mission is not political. 
The church's mission is not to take over the world. The church's mission is not to have dominance like Israel did. This is one of the markers of discontinuity with the nation of Israel. Israel does have a national and an international program, and the church isn't to do what they were called to do. And Paul says that Israel has not been fully done away with. They've been temporarily set aside. And he tells them, essentially, you guys are focusing on all the wrong things for right now. It's not your business to organize all the rest of redemptive history from this point out. He says to them what we need to hear repeatedly. Just fix your gaze on this one person. Let Jesus Christ consume your focus and attention. And just put yourself in a Jewish mindset for a moment. See, for them, this is startling news. They think at this point, Israel's only useful if they're in a position of power. This is what God has determined. So for them, listen, the kingdom is being equated with what? Power, authority, position, prominence. That's the way God is going to move forward, right? That's like how we think all the time. If, if only God saved people in positions of great power, oh man, imagine what, what that would do for the gospel. Don't we think like that sometimes? That's what they're thinking. Like put Israel back in their proper position of power and just watch how useful we can be to God. And then you'll, you'll love this. Look at verse eight. What are we gonna do now? But you will receive power. Don't you love that? But it's not in your position, it's in your identity. And look at this, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Why? What's the purpose? What's the mission? Look, here's why. You will be identified with the work of Jesus Christ and you will be empowered for the work that he has called you to. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Church, this is why we exist. We don't exist to remain in a holy huddle. We don't exist to simply have a good time and to be a social club. We don't exist to just sit around and attend church on Sundays. We exist because we have been given a mission by Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, who is the Lord and ruler of the universe. He says the true power is the spirit of God that will reside within you. This is where the power of God needs to be manifested. The power, the capability for the mission is given by the Holy Spirit. And this is what will shape and define the community that I have called. This is what shapes the church of Jesus Christ. To be a witness is to testify. It is to declare the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is our job. This is our role. We are a witness about Jesus. We are a living testimony to who he is, what he has accomplished, and what he is coming back to do. The word means literally to attest to certain realities and to convince others of these realities. The scope of this mission is unfolded here. It is the surrounding areas, which by the way had formerly been seen as enemies of Israel, separated from Jerusalem. There's Judea, Samaria, and all the way to the end of the earth. This has always been the mission of the Savior, consumed with the nations. Ethnic and geographical divisions are no more. The gospel will advance. It will continue to progress. This witness thing 
is really important. But here, they don't quite know why it's so important. That's what chapter 2 will unfold for us. But for now, they are called onto this mission. They are given a new life, a new power to complete this mission. They have been given great confidence, courage, and conviction that the new day is here. And lastly, the progress of a new hope is real. It's fascinating what happens next in verse 9. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight and While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus begins his ascension again. This is a reminder that he is raising to a position of authority. He is being seated at the right hand of the Father and he goes up and this cloud surrounds him and he's no longer in their sight but they're looking up into heaven still. You say, why? Why are they still gazing up into heaven? Because all of their questions about the kingdom and when it's going to come haven't been fully answered. They're still wondering how this is all going to happen. Jesus, it's interesting, he repeats, um, Luke does, he repeats the, this final commissioning of Jesus. And you say, well, why would he do that? Well, if you were on your deathbed, you'd have an opportunity to communicate a lot of things to people you love. And you have to choose wisely, don't you? What are the final words you would want communicated? And, and why would they be your final words? Because they, they bear a greater weight, don't they? You want them to settle on the hearts of those who love you, who are around you. You want them to leave. You want to leave them, excuse me, with the final thought that this is what I want for you. This is what I want you to focus on. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, This is my agenda. Don't get sidetracked. Now, we can do all kinds of things, but if they sidetrack us from the main mission, this is really important, church. This is so critical. We can do a lot of things as a church. We can be involved in, in good social action. We can be involved even in helping to shape politics, all things that are good and fine. You can, you can be involved in a whole lot of things as a follower of Christ. Listen, but, but, but if they sidetrack us from the main mission, then, listen, we have violated the edict of our king. We have violated not only his edict, we have violated his agenda for this time on earth, and that is no laughing matter. When we stand before the king, when he comes back, it is a serious thing to have deviated from the king's command and the king's call. The progress of the gospel is tied to our obedience to the king's edict. Be my witness. That is your one job. You go after that. You throw everything into that. And here's why that's so vitally important. Remember, they've asked about the kingdom being restored to Israel. And Jesus has said, don't worry about that. Focus on what I've called you to. The implication for them might have been to simply desert the mission. Well, I'm out. I don't want to wait for that. I've got other plans. But here what Jesus is doing is he's giving them confidence for the future. They're gazing up into heaven because they still don't have all the answers they were hoping for. What about the kingdom thing, Lord? What about the kingdom? And I love this. All of a sudden, two angels are standing beside them. Did you love that? Can you just picture the scene? Like these guys are like, 
where, where are you, Jesus? And the angels look like, what are you guys doing? Did, didn't you hear what he said to you? Why, why? Get your head out in the clouds, guys. Come on. This is a, listen, this is a mild rebuke and a gentle encouragement. He's looking at them saying, guys, stop worrying about what's to come and start worrying about now. Guys, get after the task. There's work to be done. Don't you get it? The same way in which he left you, he rose up into heaven and he was captured by a cloud. Is the, and, and by the way, on this mountain, you want to know what the Bible says? The Bible says in Daniel, listen to this, chapter seven, on the screen behind me. It says, I saw in the night, this is Daniel's vision of the future. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, like that, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." I mean, don't you see, this king will come back, but in the same way he left, there is a permanence to Jesus leaving for this time frame, but he will come back, and when he does, he will come on a cloud, and Zechariah tells us, when his feet come down and they touch the Mount of Olives, it will split, because the king has come back to claim his kingdom. He will come back, listen, not to offer forgiveness the second time, but with a sword coming out of his mouth. He will judge the nations. He will bring all things under subjection to himself. He's telling, look, guys, the kingdom is going to come. The kingdom is coming just like the Old Testament promised, just like Jesus said it would. We are a witness and are part of the kingdom story. That's what he's telling church. Listen, we are a witness to the king. We are an embassy on a foreign land. We are testifying to the reality of a future coming king and his kingdom. And we are pleading with people, do not resist this king. Fall humbly before him, worship him, bow before him, embrace his forgiveness and his grace. Find life in him. The sad part is, look, church, we lose sight of this. We, we think, you know, we, we just, we come to church every week, we go to small groups, we read our Bibles, we contribute to missions, we live our lives, and we fail to see that God, through the church, is unfolding his eternal plan of redemption, whereby we will see the consummation of the kingdom where Christ returns in the same way he came to rule and reign over the entire universe. He will reverse the curse. He will undo the power of sin in finality. And that is the future hope that is to fuel our present mission. We know the king is coming, amen? We've been given an incredible opportunity to participate in a history-changing institution, the Church of Jesus Christ. And if I can exhort your heart and mine, all other pursuits in your life will pale in comparison to this. 
There's nothing, nothing you can pursue that will amount to what God is doing in and through the church. All other pursuits will vanish. All other pursuits will fade away. But this one pursuit, listen, it will last forever. There must be a deep conviction about this. What we do here, church, is not pointless. We are playing a role in offering eternal hope, which will one day become an eternal reality. The church is being formed into a witness of hope, into an institution of hope, and the angels are looking at these men saying, men, you've been given your marching orders. You've been given the weapons for the warfare. Now get out there. The victory is already ours. Are you going to fight? There is a gap between the ascension of Jesus Christ and when he returns and places his feet back upon the Mount of Olives. Jesus told many parables about this. One in particular in Luke 19, he tells a parable because the Jews around him, believing that the kingdom was gonna come immediately, needed to be told that there is going to be a time frame where the king will exit and then he will return in the future. question that remains for us and was presented to them was this, how will you live during this gap? I recently heard a pastor tell of a, uh, an outing that he and his staff took. He rallied all the pastors and the staff and his church, and they all got in a bunch of vehicles, and they, he said, just follow me, and he took them to a cemetery. It's a great outing, right? He said, I want you to bring with, with you uh, a pen and a pad of paper. And they got to the cemetery. And he said, now I just, I want to walk around. I just, I want you to notice what all of these tombstones have in common. I want you to look at every tombstone. What do you see? You see a beginning date. You see the, the point where somebody's life was granted to them. And then you see the end date, that time when that life was extinguished from here and now. But what I want you to really pay attention to is this. In between every one of those dates, there is a dash. He said, I want you to go and I want you to sit down and I want you to call out to the Lord and I want you to pray and I want you to ask God, what God, what would you have me do with the dash that you have given me? Let me ask you this morning, what will you do with the dash that God has given you? You have a beginning date. I don't know what you've done with your life up to this point, what that dash looks like, but I can tell you this, there is hope given in Christ Jesus that the dash that you have looked, I don't know how long you have left to live, I don't know how long I have left to live. I know this, the book of Acts was written over a period of 30, it captures 30 years of history. And in 30 years of history, the Spirit of God is unleashed upon the church and a small band of rogue disciples are turning the world upside down and the gospel is advancing with such exponential force that thousands and thousands of people are being brought into this kingdom of God who will one day stand in the presence of their king. I wonder, listen, I, some of us, in, I look around this room, most of us in here, by God's grace, have 30 years left of active service to the king. Some of us don't. Some of us don't. Some of us think we have more than we do. What might God do in the next 30 years with your life? What might God do in the next 30 years of the life of this church as we submit ourselves and follow the king?
This is what the book calls us, book of Acts calls us to remember. We have been sent. We've been sent with the promise, with the power, and with the guaranteed progress of the gospel. It is a new day. You have been given a new life, and you have a new hope to offer to the dark world around us, all because of King Jesus. Amen? Maybe by his grace and power, be found faithful when the king returns.